be described by two lads with certain characteristics and attributes that apparently Pilgrim uh, Bunyan wants us to consider proceeding from the first frame. How many frames are there in the interpreter's house? Do you guys know? Seven, exactly. John Bunyan, though he was working from a dream that he had in prison, he wasn't unconscious of what he was doing. He was very theologically minded, and so he wasn't going to be arbitrary with his numbers. He's also not arbitrary with his metaphors or the analogies or the different allegories that we're going to be uh, working through. And this is specifically true in the interpreter's house. Who did we say the interpreter largely represented? The Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I want you to capture that as a um, overarching primal type of the interpreter. We know that um, the the what we call the immediate work of the Spirit of God is to grant us the interpretation and it centers in the person and work of Christ. That's really true. But Christ is the revelator. He is the revelation. Christ is the interpretation of Scripture. So he is both the manifestation of the will and purpose of God personified, but he is also the mechanism by which uh, we come to understand the kingdom of God. He is the means by which it's done. So interpreter stands for the second person. He is certainly, again, adjacently hallmarked by the third person, but Christ is the key mediator of the kingdom of God. No access to the kingdom by virtue of uh, illumination or revelation apart from Christ. This is something that we know. This is what he means by him being the light of the world, the illuminating factor of the world. And this is why a very important corollary to the journey of the Christian, the pilgrim's progress, is seen in the work that our master did with the two men on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Again, that whole epic designs for us the work of the paraclete in taking the pilgrim who are on their journey to a particular destination and opening their eyes to God's will through the exposition of scripture. Luke 24 is a critical, what we call meta-narrative paradigm for proper biblical interpretation as well as proper biblical homiletics. This is something we've taught in our class. I've combined the words uh, hermeneutics with hermiletics, two sides of the same coin, proper interpretation, proper presentation. Homiletics is how to communicate God's word. Homilies are sermons. These are old Latin concepts for writing out sermons and phrasing sermons and using anecdotes and, and learning proper uh, communication skills by which to capture the mind and to take them through a rhetorical discourse for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour, as was the case in the 17th century with, uh, with, with, with Jonathan Edwards and many others. If any of you know any of the classic works of the pilgrims and the Puritans, most of those men wrote their sermons out. Sermons were written out in full manuscript form. Every word, every jot and every tittle were written out so that those men actually read their sermons. Uh, a number of, of, of preachers still do that today, 
I was part of a community in my earlier walk where in some really smaller reform communities, Protestant reform communities, that's what they did. They wrote out their manuscripts totally. This still does happen. There's nothing wrong with writing out a manuscript sermon if the community has been trained how to listen. There's nothing with writing out a manuscript sermon if the community has been trained how to listen. As it is for us today, Miss Anderson, make sure you see me after after class, okay? You're not in trouble. Uh, just make sure you see me. Um, but in the days where there were no other uh, viable means of distraction, like we have in our day, where listening to people speak was the bulk of your learning, uh, it was easy for audiences to sit for two hours and listen to a dissertation. That was not a drudgery, it was not a problem, because they had the capacity for retaining attention. They could listen. We can't today. <clears throat> this is why we have to fill our sermons with a whole lot of other things to keep people's attention, and this is why most churches clip their sermons down to 30 minutes, 20 minutes, because people cannot endure sound doctrine. Uh, do we have music going on or some phones? We need to clip that. Um, in any event, uh, what I'm sharing with you has to do with uh, John Bunyan's real love for the ministry, real love for the ministry. Obviously, you know, John Bunyan was a pastor. So pastors actually love pastors, particularly when they're faithful. And, and therefore, we are not surprised that the first frame in the interpreter's house is about what? The faithful what? Minister, I need you to keep that hierarchy there because it's going to make sense as we go through the different categories. To, tonight, we will probably begin to frame and broach the subject of the two lads, right? One is called what? <clears throat> Passion. And the other is called what? Patience. patience, right? And again, that linguistic device, passion, patience, is by design. It's not only just a proper linguistic device for uh, mnemonics, you can remember it easy. One is passion, one is patience, but it is a model that comes from scripture. Scripture will give you these kind of parallelisms. I'm going to show you one verse today that I think is the Old Testament corollary to our text as I'm trying to figure John out. But I say all that because I want you to be thinking as we are working through the seven uh, frames, seven allegories, the seven metaphor and typological patterns of the kingdom of God, I want you to be ready to think about how those frames connect to either other frames in the interpreter's house or previous events. Because every event has a correlation to every other event as there is a progression to the pilgrim making it to the celestial city, okay? I want you to be thinking about that. That's where I'm gonna be challenging you and helping you. Let me open in prayer, and we're gonna read a portion of scripture, and I'm, then I'm gonna see if I can build my argument for you to help you and I understand the coherence of scripture, the coherence of didactic teaching, how things correlate, how they correlate. Father, help us now as we enter into your word Help us to give you undivided attention. Help us to see where we are in the parable of the kingdom of God at large. Help us to have hearts wide open to learn from you. Help us to um, be eager to grow, to be eager to mature, 
to be eager to see things the way you see them and to be eager, O oh God, to participate in the advancement of your glory among your people. This is where we're asking. And so we are willing to sit at your feet as disciples and learn of you. This is what you have called us to do, to learn of you. We are, we are weak and weary. We are tired and burdened. We are hungry and thirsty for your reality as it's revealed in your son. And so we're asking, Lord, as you have taught us how to sit and listen, we're asking that you would speak and confirm your word to our hearts. We're praying for everybody watching who will continue to watch. We're asking all these things on the grounds of Christ's blood, our purging, our cleansing, our sanctification, our washing, O oh God, and on the grounds of his righteousness, our standing before you, immutable, unchangeable, irreversible, O oh God, Christ in us and we in Christ and we in you, Father, and you in us by your spirit. Help us in this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So as we read first Corinthians chapter 10, what Paul is going to do is kind of give us a litany of accounts from verse one to verse six. I'll start at verse one from verse one to two, verse six. And you're going to see in the biblical text a corollary of events that are tied together as well that underscore the linear progression of the one gospel that God is revealing in the person of Christ in the Old Testament. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I would that you should not be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That's one event that he's calling uh, the church at Corinth back to. You guys know that event. That's the Exodus account. That's the Red Sea event, right? Uh, he's talking about something that had happened some 1,500 years before he wrote the, the epistle to the Corinthians. 1,500 years earlier, and didn't notice how he uses the first person plural. Moreover, brethren, I would that you not be ignorant how that all our, do you see that? We, fathers. So he's tying the present saints who are listening to the past saints who came out of Egypt that infers that we have something to do with what happened back there. This is very important for you to get around the correlation of scripture and its inference to you and I now. Okay, let me keep going. Verse two, I want to make my way to verse six. And we're all baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What is he doing now? He's given an event of the Exodus. We call that Passover. The Exodus is Passover. Then he's giving us an event of baptism. This is so fascinating. I shouldn't do this because I don't really have time. But he's giving us an Old Testament paradigm with a New Testament mechanism, a New Testament metaphor. Baptism is New Testament. It's not Old Testament. It's New Testament. But what he's doing is he's demonstrating you can't break from the old and the new when you understand they're both centered in Jesus. Jesus spans old and new. Jesus spans old and new. All of the people of God come from both the old and the new. And that makes those two events extremely correlative and relevant to where you and I are. Verse three. And did it eat all the same spiritual meat? What is he doing now? Advancing them in their journey. This is called progressive revelation, right? We are now a month in and they are hungry and they are asking for food, right? So they're on their Exodus journey as you and I are. And remember last year's whole theme was arrive, move and go, right? 
So we are on our journey. And what is he doing? He's now taking the Old Testament manna and showing how it correlates to the New Testament Jesus. Old and new again, right? Old and new. They ate manna, we eat manna. And so the Corinthians are now realizing through a theological discourse, their spiritual genetic connection to the children of Israel. Verse four, verse four, and did all eat, did all drink the same spiritual drink from the rock for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was who? Right. Christ is the key to the whole of the revelation. He's the key. This is why we say the interpreter is the one who is Christ, because the door can only be opened by the interpreter. Only the interpreter opens the door. Christ is the key to the scriptures. Notice what it says in verse five. Now we got to keep going. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. This is something that is also inclusive in the narrative. So as we are working through the seven frames in the interpreter's house, some of those frames are dark, aren't they? They're foreboding. They're problematic. Chris, uh, <clears throat> Christian really is not feeling the man in the cage. He ready to go. And the interpreter says, no, we got one more dude you need to look at to make sure you understand how to avoid this pathway, right? It's extremely important. But when many of them, God was not well pleased for they were all overthrown in the wilderness. This is a paradoxical reality in, in the gospel that we have to work through. People perish under the gospel. People perish under the gospel. Those are hard sayings, but it's a fact, right? And notice how Paul now concludes in verse six with a warning to the church at Corinth. Here it is. Now, these things were what? Examples. They were what? Examples. That's our Greek term, tupoi, or what we have in the English, tupos, or type. These things were types, types and patterns. This is what we're getting ready to teach, types and patterns. What did he say there? He's saying all of those events in the Old Testament emerge as pictures on the wall, like interpreter's house, as types and patterns for us to learn from. Tupas is the idea of imprinting on something a stamp so that when you press it on, that stamp of the emblem and image is there. That's the same term that's used concerning the nail prints in Jesus' hands after his crucifixion, when he told Thomas, Thomas, see and look the nail prints in my hand, the tupas in my hand. So types are designed to impress images, impress frames, impress messages that don't go away. Types are extremely important. And notice what he says here. Now, these things were examples. These things were our examples to the intent that we should not here it is, lust after evil things as they what? Also, love. that's called correlation. Correlation between the old and the new. We also should not lust as they did also. You see that? This is what we call the imperatival uh, takeaway. The, the takeaway from these six verses is you and I need to understand that he that endured to the end, the what? Same shall be saved. Right. And therefore, we are called to make our calling and election what? Right. These are frames I put out before us all the time because they're true. And this is what we're about to learn here. So in your outline, uh, the opening of the outline, the Pilgrim's Progress, the interpreter's house, we're dealing with passion and patience. These are two boys and they are a scriptural what? They are scriptural types. This is in the front of your outline. You just need to capture that. Passion and patience become scriptural types. So under point number one, let's, let's lightly 
adjust some categories, which we will dig deeper into tomorrow night with everyone in their own home, in their own comfort, as we drill down more theologically accurate. Point number one, the two sons are patterns in the what? Scripture. Patterns in the scripture. The two sons. So if you're awake, I know your body's here, but your mind may not be. The two son principle runs all the way through the Bible. That's what makes it a pattern. A type is different than a pattern. A type can happen one time. A pattern repeats itself. When a thing becomes a pattern, it's consistent. And so what I want you to capture with this two sun principle is the pattern running through scripture. Now, I only gave you three. There's a fourth one I want to give you. And if you got your outline early and you did the work that I told you to do, you get your outline. The verses are there. They give you the hints of the categories to go into space. Right. So if we're talking about a two sun pattern, um, then I'm dealing with Genesis four. It really should have been Genesis four, one through eight. Who who are the sons in Genesis four? Right. Abel and Cain. Right. Abel and Cain. And they should go in those two categories. Right. Right. You can Cain and Abel. It doesn't matter. Abel and Cain. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Verse two. We can walk it through. She again bears brother Abel. OK, there we go. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. And then you guys know what happened, don't you? Right. So leave that alone because I don't want to go into that now. I'm going to going to talk about something. The next thing that we look at in our outline is under Genesis 25, 21 through 34. The next group of two boys who knows what who they are. Jacob and Esau. Right. Jacob and Esau. Just want you to mark those in because what they become are types and then also patterns of allegorical teaching that is a historical event that has for us lessons we can understand redemptively you you know that right so again we have uh cain and abel we have jacob and esau and then one more i use the new testament for this but i could have easily used genesis 20 uh genesis 17 and genesis 22 for the other two famous boys who are they isaac and ishmael right Isaac and Ishmael. So they can go either way because Ishmael is older than Isaac as Abel and Cain and then Jacob and Esau, right? You guys see that. Okay, so when we are looking at these kind of typological patterns, this is theology I'm dealing with you now so you can be sensitive to how you study your Bible. The um, the short allegory of the um, of the two two lads that we're dealing with. It's a short allegory. It doesn't draw out long, but there are many lessons in it. What these two boys, these two boys serve for us as being passion and patience are parallelisms and contrasts. This is what I want you to pick up on. Parallelisms and contrasts. Parallelisms is when two things are the same. Contrast is when two things are what? Different. So like in the word passion and the word patience, what's the same? The first main letter, P, right? But passion as a definition serves as an antithesis to patience, doesn't it? Because patience is a virtue over against passion. And that becomes the kind of context for the lesson in our account, right? The lesson in our account is it is better to be what? Patient than it is to be what? passionate. And it's not to say that passion doesn't have a place. 
It's just to say that when we understand the nature of our journey as pilgrims, you and I are called to a qualitative gift of patience in order for us to negotiate our walk more successfully. It's extremely important that you get that. We're going to be really having a good time drilling down into that more fully um, on uh, tomorrow night. So here's some things that come to mind that I just want you to capture in your thought. When you look at the account of the two lads and you realize how the two lads are in one room, <clears throat> in one small space, so that they don't really go off on their own journey. They have to live in the same space and events take place in that space that amount to passion receiving his good things now and patience receiving his good things later. You guys remember that? All right, so immediately you know what John Bunyan is doing. You know John is eliciting from the Gospel of Luke the correlation between Lazarus and the rich man. You know that. The rich man is receiving his goods now and Lazarus receives his later. Did that make some sense? I just want to make sure you get this because when you know your Bible, the Holy Spirit can take you back and land you on those passages and you go, aha, I see what the, I see what the man is saying. And then all we need to do now is drill out, drill down into the characteristics of the idea of passion and the characteristic of the idea of patience and see what we learn. What what this little short uh, story tells me is to raise the question about outcomes and results and conclusions. When I read this little story, what becomes important to me is outcomes results and conclusions. I want you to get that because really what the story tells us along with explaining the characteristics of the boys and temperament and attitude, all that, we're going to get into that, is really what we call the law of reciprocity. The law of reciprocity. What the lesson teaches us in this small little mini story, mini narrative is whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. That's Galatians chapter six, okay? Around verse six, I want you to capture that. This is what's going on. And so the, 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 the takeaway lesson, the moral lesson, the grounding of the ultimate lesson out of these two, I want you to have it up front because once we get into the minutia of the event, I, I want that to be in the forefront of your mind. The lesson that Pilgrim is learning by this little snapshot of these two boys is better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. Okay, that's in your outline. I gave it to you. This is called a redemptive perspective. This is a redemptive perspective. Okay, so I'm just laying out some ideas. For me, outcomes, results, and conclusions are essential because a person that's wise is far more advantaged than a person that's foolish because a person that's wise knows how to consider outcomes. They know how to consider results. They know how to look at the net effect of behavior and choices. I teach us that all the time here, do I not? Because they are unavoidable. Unavoidable is the fact that whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. And if reaping is an inexorable reality, what I want to make sure that I am capable of doing, if I can, is sowing good seed. 
because whatever I sow is going to be the harvest that I reap. Is that true? These are axioms that are extremely important for you and I to, to capture. Galatians 6, 7. So the other thing that comes to mind as I'm working through passion and patience, which we're going to do a little bit more, again, framing. That's what I'm doing with you now is framing. And then we're going to go in, we're going to wrestle tomorrow night because we can just take our time and do it, is the idea of temperament. Now, this has everything for me to do with character, temperament, temperament. It is, this is about who I am. This is about who passion is, who is passion, and who is patience. The account tells us that these are two little lads, which is a very interesting sort of uh, twist on, on character development because you wouldn't think that two little lads, two little boys, have anything to teach us in relationship to virtue and character, particularly in the area of like patience, right? Because as a rule, kids are not. But I'm going to tell you why I think John is giving us the analogy of children, and this is going to be important. The analogy of children is about the analogy or the metaphor or the state of the professing believer at the educational level. The believer at the educational level. That's what the analogy is about. The believer at the educational level. All right. So the New Testament calls us children of God. So I want you to capture this. At the, at the adolescent, pre-adolescent, in fact, we are at the pre-puberty uh, level here. We're, we're down in the child level. This would be in Greek grammar, the padia from which we have pediatrics in our, in our medical industry and a pediatri uh, pediatrician deals with who? Children. So padia is the Greek term for child, young child, okay? And what, what Bunyan is teaching us is that the New Testament depicts all of us as children. And what that means is you and I are vulnerable and necessarily committed to having to learn how to be, how to be. And, and as that is the case, the trajectory of the experience of the child of God is one of learning, one of learning. That's the trajectory of the child of God. For the child of God, learning and knowing are two sides of the same coin. Help my people, Lord, help, help, help us get this. You, are no, you don't know as well until you have learned well what you know, right? Like you can be told something, but it's not the same as learning something, okay? Like you can be told a lot of things and they have a one-dimensional impression upon your mind, but the moment that you are thrust into the experience of it, it takes a multi-dimensional relevance. Makes sense, right? Right, and, and actually in the New Testament, gnosis is the idea of learning, right? Gnosis is the idea of learning. It is the learning that is a consequence of actually experiencing the thing that you are told must be part of your, your growth experience. And so when we think about the two lads uh, being a representative here, here are what they are representing. They're representing the believer in the stages of learning. This is where you and I are, right? So you and I don't ever want to be in, in our own perception, in a place of already knowing. 
right? You and I don't know much at all. Right? I want to press that home. It's far better to just be in the vast availability of God's providence in your life at the level of learning. This is what it means to be a disciple. You're a learner. This is what it means to be a disciple. Let me tell you some things about discipleship versus the idea of being a teacher. In the scripture, to be a teacher is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous, sure, everybody wants to be one. Problem is they shouldn't. And that's what your Bible says. Let there not be many teachers because they receive the greater condemnation. Right. And so to be a child of God is to be free of the condemnation of the expectations that comes with a teacher because a teacher can harm you significantly. Right. Unless that teacher really has the gift of humility and understand that they are more of a student than they are a teacher. If they're thinking that they know everything, the reality is, as God has already said, none of us know much at all. All right, so, so what I'm doing with you is I'm getting ready to show you a correlation between the first frame and the second frame. Can I, is that okay? That's what I'm doing here. I'm, 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 what I want you to do is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18 about do not despise the idea of uh, technios or padia, padia or, um, or um, huios. Do not despise being a, a child. Do not despise being a son. Do not despise being children. I'm giving you the th three Greek terms. One of the other one is nepios. Okay, nepios. Do not be despise being a nepios. A nepios is a babe. That's the term in First Corinthians three. Your babes. Hebrews five. Your babes. It's the term that Paul, Peter uses in First Peter two as newborn what babes. Nepios. Right. Don't despise that. In fact, at, at the heart of your vitality as a Christian, you always want to be like a newborn babe because the newborn babe sincerely desires God. When you get a little older, the challenge of sincerely desiring God is a threat. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, except you humble yourself and become like a little child, you're not going to enjoy the kingdom. For such is the kingdom of God. Did that make some sense? All right. So the reason I'm framing this is because we got our time to work it through. I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to despise the fact that Bunyan did something here that was quite interesting. In the frame before, we have the picture of who? The faithful who? Minister. What was that faithful minister? He was a man, wasn't he? He was a man of some age, wasn't he? He was not a child. He was a teacher, wasn't he? He was a faithful minister who, who was accompanied by nine qualitative attributes. You guys remember them? Because you should, because the next frame only makes sense when we have met with the person who is the prototype of the educator for the people of God to get them to glory. Right? That first frame described for us the characteristics of the faithful minister. If you guys recall all of the attributes, the characteristics of the faithful minister is that he was of what kind of face? Sober face. That means he wasn't given to earthly folly. Secondly, he was of a, he wore, he had his head towards where? 
heaven. That means he wasn't driven by carnal things. Thirdly, what did he have in his hand? That means he didn't abandon the word of God to secular worldly philosophies. He wasn't a consman, a snake oil salesman. He was committed to biblical truth. He was sober. His head was in heaven. That means he was much more interested in eternal verities than he was temporal things. That's going to be part of the lesson we learn here. And so he had the word of God in his hand. What did we learn was the other attribute of the Bible being in his hand. Was it loose or tight? He held it tight. Thy word have I hid in my heart. So you can take it out of my hand, but you can't take it out of my heart. And so the minister indicated that he was committed to biblical truth as the foundation of his service to the people of God, right? You guys also remember how that not only was the Bible in his hand, what was in his lips? The law or word of truth. That means he could communicate the Bible because Bible in is what? Bible out in terms of transformation of the mind, in terms of the wisdom of God, in terms of being able to help people. These are all good reminders, are they not? I want to take you through the other characteristics because I want to show you the correlation between the grown man and the two little boys. Now notice what he says here. He not only uh, was the word of, uh, word of truth fitted in his lip, where was the world to him behind his back? That means he was not beholden to the world as the object of his affection, as the focus of his attention, as his fundamental desire. He was not of the world, right? That's what Jesus says. Father, they are not of the world. Therefore, the world hates them. What that means is that minister is not lauded by the world. He has his back to the world. I told you what that meant. It meant that he cursed the world in the same way Jesus said to Satan, Satan, get thee behind me. You savor the things of men and not the things of God. Speaking to Peter, remember that? So this godly minister had a very clear understanding that the world is not the object of one's affections. The other thing we discovered about him was that what was above his head? What was above his head? A crown. A crown. There was a old minister. His name was John Jasper, African-American, ex-African-American slave. And um, somewhere around the 17th century, maybe even the 18th century here, an American slave. And he, he was an ex-slave. He won his, won his rights as, a, uh, as a, a free man. And then he went into the ministry, John Jasper. And he was prominent everywhere. Uh, and his preaching was such that they said that whenever John Jasper preached, he set men and women's heels on eternity every time he preached. He never let people think that there was more important things than to make sure that you understand that you're ready for heaven. John Jasper preached in a way that kept people at the door of heaven. Did that make some sense? He kept them at the door of heaven. What a great minister. So the reason why I say that is because the crown over uh, the minister's head here is exactly what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Remember, he says, I have fought a good fight, right? I have kept the faith, right? Henceforth is laid up for me, what? A crown of righteousness, right? Which the Lord will give to everyone that loves his appearing. He, he gave the implication that when men and women 
are operating with a proper worldview, heaven is their goal, and the crown is the Lord's approval of you and reward of the labors that you engage in. This is what Paul is talking about. You guys got that, right? We've talked about crowns before. We've, we've talked about the reward display of God's approval upon his servants. Well done, my good and what? Faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Well, the minister who is thinking of receiving that approbation from the Lord is going to live in a way by which he can rightfully expect that. Would you agree? Now, here's the other thing that I love that we didn't get a chance to drop on. But we're at the seventh category of him. We're at number eight now. What was he doing? What was he doing? He was praying. The minister was praying. Now, do you guys remember what he was praying for? Do you remember what he was praying for? John Bunyan made it very clear. John says he was praying for children. He was praying for children, not physical children in the world, but men and women coming to a real, vital, rebirth, salvation experience as a consequence of the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Did that come home? This is Galatians chapter 4.19. Listen to Galatians 4.19. This is what Paul said to the church at Galatia. And, and I just want this to come on because I'm getting ready to show you the corollary if you want it. And we can enjoy it. He says in uh, 4.19, my little children. This is Paul is talking to the church at Galatia, right? Now, notice what he says. My little children. I love that. That's the affectionate term that Jesus used concerning the disciples frequently. Now, these boys is grown men, and he's calling them children, and that's because they sat under him for three and a half years in the humility of a master-disciple relationship, and he called them that because they were learners. I'm making some sense, right? So mark what Paul does here. He says, my little children of whom I what? In birth again until Christ be formed in you. What is the metaphor here? Paul now is the metaphor of the church in a posture of wanting to birth men and women into the kingdom of God. See it? This is a serious minister. His desire is to see people really, truly saved. Does that make sense? His desire is to see people really, truly saved. His priority is preaching the word of God with enough clarity that it becomes the incorruptible seed that he can trust that once that seed is sown, it is faithful enough for the Holy Spirit to give uh, metabolic life in that seed, to metabolize that seed in the heart and bring about conversion. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't just preach. He prays. See? All right. So here it is. I'm almost there. I've just painted a composite picture in our first frame of the paternal or parental responsibility of the ministry of the gospel. This man is a parent. He's a parent. He's a father. Am I making some sense? He's a parent. What you're looking at is a dad. A dad who's doing everything that God is calling him to do to see to it that there is life birth in the kingdom of God. 
Frame number one. Frame number two. Children. There it is. There it is. There it is. See the correlation? Do you see the correlation? Frame number one is not separated from frame number two. Frame number two does not happen without frame number one. Men and women do not become born again without the faithful preaching of the gospel and praying for men and women to be born again. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm getting across. All I'm getting across is that the frame preceding the frame we're dealing with is essential to the frame we're dealing with. You don't have the two boy paradigm if the two boys don't have a father. Your Bible is a patriarchal lineage book. It's always about the father and the sons, is it not? It's always about the father's. God is father. And Adam was his son, was he not? And so Adam and Eve, they had sons. Here they are, Cain and Abel. And so then Abraham had sons. Here they are, right? Jacob and Esau. And Jacob had sons, or Isaac had sons, right? So now you got this father-son paradigm running through all the scriptures. I'll give you one more uh, parallel of sons in terms of um, parallels and con contrast that'll just settle in your heart. Judah, uh, Judas, Judas, Iscariot, and Jesus. These are your two subtle, final Old Testament parallels and contrasts. I know it doesn't immediately come to you, but it does me. And that's because Judah, Judas Iscariot, his name represents the tribe that Jesus came from, the tribe of Judah. Judah is the fourth son of the 12 tribes of Israel, out of whom Jesus will come. Jesus comes into the world, enters into his ministry in the middle of his 30s, and one of his 12 disciples is Judas. Him and Judas are brothers. This is why there are Psalms devoted to Judas Iscariot and his opposition to Christ, are they not? The final sort of parallel contrast is that Judas represents a son but he is really not one. And Jesus represents the son who is really one. They are both occupying the same space. Judas is as close to Jesus as anybody is going to get. You, me, or anyone. Judas gets to occupy the office of bishop, the office of apostle. That's what Paul, Peter said in Acts chapter 1. You can't get closer to God than being next to Jesus at the time Jesus was living. This Man has all kind of privileges, does he not? You guys keeping up with me? Right, now I may ask you, is Judas patient or is Judas passion? See what I'm getting at? Did he come home? Right. Judas wanted his good things now. Jesus waited for later. See what I'm getting at? Right, these are the beautiful connecting points in scripture that help us to look at Old Testament and New Testament in a continuity that exalts God's redemptive purposes in Christ. All right, good. We have a few more minutes. I can work with you a little bit um, as to where we are under point number one as we scoop all the way down. The interpreter, as 
uh, Pilgrim was talking to him was uh, explaining to uh, Pilgrim the difference between passion and the difference between patience. Under point number two, the lessons are about what? Worldviews. Worldviews. I remember the first time I had to deal with the issue of worldviews in our church. This was a long time ago. This is about three years into our church two or three years into our church. So I want to talk briefly about it because I have enough time to give you basically the two frameworks. Because these two boys, which is a short mini story, are about two world views. How people see the world. How people see the world. That's what they are. World views is the idea of what your values and your judgments are about life. Your worldview is your values and your judgments about life. Your worldview is how you understand the world and how the world fits into the scheme of your life. And, and because of that, there is a reciprocal knowledge interface between you and it, the world, that shapes your values, that frames your judgments. It, it helps inform you one way or the other how I view the world. If I view the world as so absolutely essential to my identity, then I hold a whole, I hold a very high view as to how the world thinks about me. If the world is viewed by me as, watch this now, the place to be, then I am absorbed by all that the world has to offer me. Please listen, when you hear that term, you know, you only live once, you are completely immersed in propaganda. You only have one life. And that's how people live. That's how people live. People live with the axiom, again, thank God it's Friday. Can't wait to party. Start all over again on Monday. And then find all the other hot spots in the world to actually affirm the validity and value of my existence. Now, your Bible is riddled with all kinds of events, particularly in the New Testament. We're getting ready to go to a few of them. But what I'm getting, what I'm asking you to do is think about what's going on with these boys. What principles govern our character so that our choices and actions reflect our viewpoint? That is a great question. What principles govern our what? Character. So that they affect and reflect our viewpoint in terms of our choices. Every day we get up making choices. And all of our choices are a direct consequence, outcome. This is what I meant earlier when I said when I read about these two boys, I'm thinking outcomes. I'm thinking results. I'm thinking conclusions. It would be very wise for a parent when they watch their child at two, three, four, five, six, seven, or eight years old to begin to see patterns in their children that if left in that sequence as a predictable programming sort of model, they're gonna be a certain way when they become a young adult. That's what they're gonna be. Parents have to look and see, and they should have what we call an eschatological vision. And eschatology is the study of end time things. This is what these two boys are about. These two boys are about two major theological characteristics. The first is uh, gospel sanctification. 
That's what we're going to get in tomorrow. So the parallels in the two boys is one is passionate. The other one is passion. The other one is what? Patient, right? So what, what we're going to be dealing with is um, what is called trials or tests of both of them under what is what may be clearly understood as gospel sanctification. Gospel sanctification. It's extremely important for you to capture that. Gospel sanctification is the process of development, of growth, of maturity, of struggle, 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 of difficulty, of challenges, of the life coexisting in a world filled with all kinds of oppositions, all kinds of hindrances, all kinds of problems. That is the matrix. Okay, the matrix for the believer is what we may call trials and tests that impact us at gospel sanctification levels. And for those of you who don't know, gospel sanctification is simply the idea that when God saves you, it means he's going to grow you up, grow you up into maturity through trials. James chapter one, verse 12, James one, 12. Here it is. And I want you to capture this, too. It's extremely important. And I put the adjectival expression gospel sanctification because what you're going to learn in the other frames is there's a difference between legal works religion sanctification and gospel sanctification, aren't we? We're going to learn that just in another frame or two at the parlor, are we not? That in the parlor, someone is being impacted by a legal mode of sanctification and it doesn't work. There needs to be a gospel sanctification. Well, John Bunyan is really teaching you and me that everything we're going through, if we're really children of God, is gospel sanctification. Right. And so we're not separating the trial from the outcome because the outcome is constituent with the trial. Listen to what James says in James 1.12. Blessed is the man that endure what? The word should be trials. Blessed is the man that endures trials for when he, that's the same Greek word for Rexmas, when he is what? Tried. Watch this. He shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that what? That's a verse worth memorizing because the verse here is describing the end product of your labors, your life. Blessed is the man or the woman that endures. That's called perseverance. Remember the theology of preservation and perseverance? Has Christian endured up to now? Yes. Has he made it through the wicked gate? Yes. Is he in the interpreter's house? Yes. Is he being exposed to excellent things? Is God sanctifying him? You should be able to say with a hearty yes from two vantage points. If you're reading carefully, you're seeing that God is keeping him all the way through, no matter what his struggles are. Christian is now being brought into the deeper revelations of the kingdom of God for whom we learned last week. It is not given for those that are without to press in this far to capture realities at this level, because realities at this level is what changes your life. Is what changes your life. It's what uproots you from this world system. It's what gives you an advantage over people who only have one eye. We have two eyes. Right. Right. Which the Lord hath promised. Now, can the Lord lie? Can he change? Will he fail? If he said it, will he not do it? So you and I know the end of the story with Pilgrim. 
He's better off than us, is he not? Because he already made it to the celestial city. We're on our way. But what we do know is he left a scarlet colored line called the Pilgrim's Progress for us to get a hold of so we can follow him, right? Which is what the scriptures tell us to do. So I'm laying this out to you so that you and I can know that the study that we are engaging in is not frivolous. It's not shallow at all. These are extremely important eternal verities. There will be people who are among us now in my, my, my little clique of about 325 people in our, in our Pilgrim's Progress class. They won't be with us a year from now. They will have turned away from the faith. They will have walked away from the gospel. Did you hear what I just said? They will be gone. Because that's the nature of the kingdom of God. Some of them, ladies and gentlemen, will be passion. They want it now. Is that true? Yes. All right, it's important. See, I, I cannot. So John Jasper bothered me when I read him many years ago. He was an ex-slave. And God graced him to understand the gospel. He was a, like a third grade educated man. And people everywhere came to hear him. What I liked about him is he preached longer than me. And didn't no one leave. And God saved many people through that man because he would not let them go until they understood that they were on the brink of eternity. See? Now all that's about for me is how God blesses a man who loves God enough to tell people the truth about what really is most important. That's all that was for me. And, uh, you know, and, and it set a paradigm for me. Lord, help me never ever to, in, in some prolonged way, preach in a way that does not set people on the edge of eternity. Right. So it's extremely important for you to know that. So um, this, this, is the, this is the essence of our study. It's really about an eschatological understanding or outcome because gospel sanctification is the, the goal of perfecting you. Is that true? Perfection. Maturing up into a state of glory. That's what it's about. And these two boys are representative of children whose temperaments and characteristics, which are a product of the provenance of the situation to model for us two extreme attitudes. And they're so simple and so easily uh, extractable from the scriptures. With the next last five minutes we have, this is all I want to do. So I'm going to uh, touch briefly on passion and then patience out of point number one. Then you and I are going to pick up uh, point number two in your outline. And then there's a third point that I have the inward struggle of both that we're going to deal with tomorrow. OK, so what you look what you're looking at, if you're paying attention, is two boys. At one level, they describe a carnal person and a spiritual person. That's what they describe. That becomes easily ascertained when you know your Bible well. They describe a worldly person and a person who is fitted for the world to come. That's precisely what the interpreter told Christian. Under point number one, passion represents the men of this world system. Patience represents the men 
of that which is to come. Did that make some sense? So then I'm just going to lay out the scriptures that underscore that. The first one will come to us out of uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. I want you to hear them, and then we're going to look at uh, the passage that deals with patience. I'm going to make an observation, we're going to close, then we're going to go deep sea diving tomorrow night. So get some sleep, because once we start, it's on. John says to his little children, in fact, John uses the same term that Jesus uses for his disciples, technon, the Greek term, little children, little children. That's the way John talks to all of them. You'll see that in the opening of the verses there. In fact, go back to verse 12. Let me see if I can do that. First uh, John 2, 12. Let's see if it's there. There it is. Boy, I'm good these days. I write unto you what? That's right. Small children, small technons. I'm going to be talking about that term technon in a little bit because this is going to actually help us understand why Paul gave us Romans chapter one the way he did. Technon is a Latin term from which we get the idea of techniques. It is from the uh, derivative of the word technology. Okay, so technology is what is called applied science. Technology is applied science. When we use the term technology in the 21st century, what we're talking about is technology holding a place in our universe equivalent to God. Technology holds a place in our universe today equivalent to God. So what you are dealing with are two technological systems working in our world. One technological system claims ownership of the world at the level of transforming it into its own image. Do you see that? I'll build that out in the future. Slide it over there because that is what Paul John is saying. The world has its own technons, its own children. Over here, there is a true God with an organic world system, and his children are technons too. They are the technology of God. They are the applied science of God who creates them, he produces them, he manufactures them in his own image and in his own likeness. Did you get that? Did you get it? Yeah. That's the battle that we're going to be going deep sea diving in in the, in the rest of this year. I kind of laid that out to you a little bit on Sunday when I talked about the son of God and the son of perdition, the true God and the false God and the world system and the world to come. This is what you're getting right here. <clears throat> it makes sense, right? And it's extremely important that your ears perk up because the technologies of this present world if you don't have a love for God, you cannot but not be sucked up into its Frankensteinian agenda. You can't help it. It will happen. That's what the Bible teaches us. So listen to what this, these verses say. I'm going to hurry up and finish. Uh, verse 14, please. John, 1 John 2, 14. I've written unto you fathers because you have known him, that is from the beginning. I've written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. A great idea about a young man. Now, a young man is not a little child. 
So a little child has to advance to that young man's status. When you come to that young man's status, that is a dignity term for both men and women becoming mature in the faith. And the evidence of maturity in the faith is that the word of God abides in you and you overcome the wicked one. Does that help? Very important. Look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. Love not the world. A direct imperative from the father. Do not have an agape for this world system. Do not become enamored by this secular technological age of absolute uh, witchcraft level uh, projections of, of, of uh, all kinds of possibilities and all kinds of experiences and events. Don't become, here's another term, fascinated by this world. Don't let this world fascinate you. The way Paul puts it in the book of Galatians is, do not become mesmerized so as to be uh, enchanted by the witchcraft of this world system. Those are good ways to put it, right? And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Because little children are easily manipulated. Little children are easily manipulated. Verse 16. I'm sorry, stay here. Love not the world, neither the things that are, stay there. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we got to wrestle with that, don't we? We got to wrestle with that. We got to wrestle with that. That is a dangerous text. That's a dangerous text. If any man loves this world system, it means the love of the Father is not in him. I wouldn't, I would, I would see that text as telling me I can't long for and love and sacrifice my life for this world and say I long for and love and sacrifice my life for the kingdom of God since they are mutually exclusive since they are in opposition to each other since they are hostile enemies to each other I can't love both of them if I love the world it's evident that the love of the father is not in me if the love of the Father is vitally running through my veins, my back should be to the world. Right, so, so a few more, a few more, and then we'll go. Verse 16. Uh, do we do verse 16? First John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. Is that passion? Is that passion? The lust of the eye and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, it is of the world. So what a great text because you guys know what happened in the account, right? Passion is sitting around and then what was dumped into his lap? All of the goods of this world. Do you guys remember that? Go back and read it. Please read it. Please read it. That little short snippet is teaching us so much. Patience didn't get that event, did he? Now, Patience didn't get that event because of what? He didn't want it. Helping you. We're going to drill down into it tomorrow, right? Now, what on earth would a boy with that kind of attitude do saying, I'll wait for mine later? What is operating in that cranium for him to be able to look over there at passion 
and watch him just wallowing in all kinds of gifts. And him just saying, ah, I'll wait. Ah, I'll wait. There are so many lessons around sanctification of the heart and mind, of the character, of the understanding here. So many lessons, aren't there? I mean, like, wow, wait. Who told you to wait? Wait for what? Why do you believe that you're going to have something better than this down the line? How powerful is that thinking? See what I'm getting at? And those are lessons we want to drill down in. And then, because these are, the, these are the two characters in front of us, are they not? And then our third point, just to let you off the hook, because I know you feel bad now, is that both of these principles coexist in our nature, don't they? Don't they? Passion and patience is our struggle. Would you agree? All right, we're going to take a break. All right, we'll pick this up tomorrow.